0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Irish Studies, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. My name is Aidan Beattie. I'm one of the co-hosts of this channel. Today, we're talking to Robert Savage, a professor in the Boston College History Department, who has also served as one of the directors of that university's Irish Studies program for close to 20 years now. He has been awarded visiting fellowships at Trinity College Dublin, the University of Edinburgh, Queen's University Belfast, and the university that now calls itself University of Galway. Professor Savage's publications explore contemporary Irish and British history and include the BBC's Irish Troubles Television Conflict in Northern Ireland in 2015, shortlisted for the Ewart Biggs Literary Award, A Loss of Innocence Television and Irish Society 1960 to 1972, which in 2010 won the James S. Donnelly Senior Book Prize from the American Conference for Irish Studies and Sean LaMasse, a biography in 2014. His most recent book is Northern Ireland, the BBC, and Censorship in Thatcher's Britain, published earlier this year with Oxford University Press. And that is the book we'll be discussing today. Professor Savage, thanks so much for joining us. Um, It's a
1: pleasure to be here, Aidan. Thanks a lot. Uh,
0: So your book obviously builds on your previous work on censorship and on the BBC during the Troubles. What did you find here that challenged what you'd found in the past or that complicated what you'd previously researched?
1: This most recent book, um, really picks up where my night, my 2015 book had left off. Um, the book that I wrote, um, and published in 2015, the BBC's Irish Troubles, um, looked at the history of the BBC in Northern Ireland from the 1920s up until the early 1980s. And it also looked at the way in which the national network covered Northern Ireland. When I was finishing that book, I was a bit frustrated because I could not get access to material from the 1980s. The written archive at uh, Caversham, you know, that houses all of the BBC material. The archivist there told me that the material I wanted access to simply hadn't been vetted yet, and that it could take years for the material to be cleared by the lawyers of the BBC. So I you know sent off the book and it was published in two thousand and fifteen and about six months, uh, maybe a year later, I heard from the archivist that I had been working with um, at the BBC who told me that all the material that I had been looking for had now been cleared. Um, so I was a bit frustrated and I wasn't sure what exactly was there. I made my way to London and you know, out to the archive and realized that there was a tremendous amount of material uh, that really detailed the way in which the BBC struggled to report accurately uh, about the conflict in Northern Ireland. And, and I realized that um, there was so much information that had never been seen before um that explained um the wrangling that went on between the Thatcher government and the BBC that you know there was a book there, and that's what uh, came out earlier this summer, um, a book about the Thatcher government's um, efforts to try and control the narrative of the troubles and and try and shape the uh, the way in which um Regional, national, and international audiences understood the conflict.
0: I might come back to that question of international audiences because obviously that's that's something quite quite new in this book compared to to the previous book that, that was obviously very British focused. But could you kind of put the two books together, maybe? How does censorship change and develop over the entire period from nineteen sixty nine up until the nineties?
1: Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's in, in fact I'd go back even before then um, when. The BBC begins broadcasting um, in Northern Ireland in 1922. Um, Initially, it's simply a a relay station. It's just uh, broadcasting um, what's coming out of London. But slowly, a regional service emerges. And that regional service is incredibly deferential to the unionist establishment in Belfast. There's uh, a real fear of alienating or angering um, the unionist government. And uh, there's a sort of self-censorship that develops within um, the regional service. Um, you know, anytime that the national service um, stumbles into the field of Irish history, um, it creates real problems inside of Northern Ireland. The unionist government is incredibly sensitive about its image. And when the national network um, for instance, might broadcast on St. Patrick's Day um, a program about Irish culture, there'll be protests from Belfast arguing that Northern Ireland is is basically not Irish. Um, Within the regional um, service in Belfast, um, any sensitive issue um, uh, about uh, grievances of the Catholic community, about gerrymandering, about discrimination are simply avoided. Uh, They're not tolerated. Um, The Unionist establishment in Belfast is, a st- is obsessed with um, its image and wants to be seen as an integral part of the United Kingdom, as a British part of the United Kingdom. And therefore, um, really um, does not tolerate uh, much in the way of um, Gaelic cultural uh, broadcasting or programming. Um, and, and that evolves, you know, then when the troubles break out in 1969, um, you know, the, the, the national network, the sort of BBC in London, um, begins to look more critically at Northern Ireland. You know, it had stayed away, uh, for decades It it regarded the BBC, um, and Northern Ireland and, and the BBC regional service as kind of the Siberia of the BBC. And it simply stayed away. But once, um, You know, the violence breaks out in 1969. Um, Journalists from the mainland begin to travel to Northern Ireland and begin to ask some really difficult questions. And the type of self-censorship that had existed in Northern Ireland and even in, in London, in regards to Northern Ireland, uh, that that is simply no longer uh, sustainable. And uh, it uh, creates real difficulties for the unionist establishment when um, journalists make their way uh, across the water or when local journalists start to ask very difficult questions um, about uh, discrimination about the policies of the Stormont government, about policing about security about job discrimination about gerrymandering um, and the kind of self-censorship <clears throat> uh, basically implodes
0: so maybe if we can go back then to this, this question of the international image um, which obviously is something new in this book um, Northern Ireland obviously is, is a big international story at various points. Throughout the period from the sixties to the nineties, so so how did international media report on Northern Ireland? Is it is it seen as some kind of post-colonial conflict, some kind of internal European
1: conflict, something totally different? It's well, it um, you know it's, it's a very good question, and it causes tremendous unease for the British government when. Um, the international press and especially the American press uh, begins to report on the civil rights campaign in Northern Ireland and make comparisons to what's going on in the American South. Um, you know, f- it, it, the uh, you know early American reports about the outbreak of violence compares um, Catholics in Northern Ireland with the blacks of uh, the United States, arguing that they've been discriminated against uh, for for centuries. Um, and they begin to equate the Orange Order with the Ku Klux Klan, um, the RUC with the um, sheriffs in the American South and places like Mississippi and Alabama, all very simplistic comparisons, um, but comparisons um, that reflect really poorly on the British government. And the British government is tremendously sensitive to the way in which, um, you know, its, uh, its image uh, is being compromised. Um, and this... Um, is true in other parts uh, of the world, whether it's in Europe or, as you can imagine, um, in um, it, it, you know in Eastern Europe or the Soviet Union. Of course, this is all taking place at the height of the Cold War, um, and uh, you know Eastern European, uh, so the Soviet uh, government, the you know Chinese government. Uh, point to what's going on in Northern Ireland, arguing that this is, um, you know, a remnant of the, the empire, that this is, you know, a sort of remnant of the colonialism, um, and that it, the IRA and others are fighting a legitimate war of liberation. So, you know, uh, the, this, this, this is something that tr- creates tremendous discomfort in, in London, as well as Belfast.
0: And could you kind of go more into detail then of how did the British government actually try to manage and, and even maybe massage some of this? You talk about that a little bit, particularly with the U.S.
1: Yeah, the, there's a the, there's an effort to try and um, explain uh, Northern Ireland uh, more clearly. Um, there's a, a propaganda effort, as it's termed, within the um British Embassy in, in Washington. They begin to um, lobby um, uh, politicians. They begin to write um, op-ed pieces and court um, what they regard as important um, political uh, leaders um, in in Washington um, to try and make the case that uh, the British and the British Army are simply peacemakers. That they're there to try and uh, prevent uh, disorder, um, and they're you know fighting a a, a, a a, a sort of an enemy that are you know terrorists um uh, so they you know try and present a more um, simplistic um narrative you know arguing um that they are peacemakers that they uh, are not uh biased um, but that's a really difficult sell um and you know all of their efforts can easily be undermined um, by by um, news and current affairs reporting, and especially by television broadcasts. For instance, uh, you know, the um, reports from um, Derry on Bloody Sunday in 1972 um, create tremendous unease in London. Um, Many of the networks in the United States, and in fact around the world, will will pick up feeds from the BBC and the independent television companies that are covering the protest in Derry in January 1972. And, you know, especially... Um, you know uh, the the um, uh, sort of interviews that are um, from the from the street in the aftermath of the shooting. Um, they they will really sort of undermine um, all of the efforts that the British government has made to try and present itself as um, as peacekeepers, um, and that's uh, that's something that caused trem- causes tremendous embarrassment. So the, you know the British government is constantly trying um, to influence. Um, the way in which the troubles will be, um, understood, um, both, you know, regionally, um, nationally, um, and internationally. And this, this, is going to be increasingly difficult as aggressive news and current affairs reporters from the BBC and the independent networks begin to ask difficult questions about, um, about British policy, about, you know, the policies pursued by the army, by the, um, security services, um, and about, you know, plans to try and bring an end to the violence. Mm-hmm.
0: So so you have a, a whole chapter in your book about the hunger strikes in, in eighty one, and those are obviously a moment where a lot of these problems from, from a British government perspective are really coming to the fore, right? You have you have Bobby Sands, this pretty photogenic character, this photogenic leaner. and then you have Sinn Fein, who are obviously quite aware of the the propaganda benefits that they're they're accruing from all this. So when we look at the hunger strikes today, how would you say that that a media history and the history of censorship would change your understanding of what happened then.
1: Yeah. Um, well, you know, the, the, uh, Sinn Féin and, and the IRA had become increasingly frustrated that their efforts to win back, um, special category status inside of the maze prison, um, weren't getting anywhere in the, uh, late seventies. Um, and in 1980 and the beginning of 1981. Um, but once, um, the, especially the sands hunger strike begins to gain momentum um you know it it, it it's a sensational story and the, the broadcast media makes its way um to belfast to tell a very compelling story and you know, sands dies after 66 days on hunger strike and one can look at the international media um initially um attracted to the story and as the hunger strike grows this uh, moves up to become the leading um, story in the CBS Evening News, for instance here in the United States or in you know any of the um, national news broadcasts. Um, and the way in which Sinn Fein is able to um, sort of present the hunger strike is that you know Bobby Sands is a is a, you know a, an attractive um, young, um, a volunteer, somebody um, who's willing to sacrifice his, his life for for freedom. Um, and the images that make their way um, into the um, international media are, are really interesting. Um, the image of Bobby Sands that we're all familiar with was from a photograph taken um, inside of the Mays prison with a small Instamatic camera. It was smuggled back out. Um, it was released To the press, and that smiling picture of a long-haired, youthful uh, Bobby Sands would often be juxtaposed next to, you know, that sort of frowning uh, face of Margaret Thatcher, who would be repeating, you know, a crime is a crime is a crime. It's not political, Um, and you know, the sort of juxtaposition of this young charismatic um, character with the sort of dour, stern face of Margaret Thatcher um, became. Uh, you know, these two images sort of battled with one another and, and you know, the, uh, it, it, it underscored just how uh, successful Sinn Féin was in, um, in, in sort of promoting its own narrative uh, about the conflict. And the fact that Sands uh, was then elected as a member of parliament only added to the story, making it a really compelling one. Without the broadcast media there, especially without television, you know, I'm not sure the story would have been um, the um, international one that it became. Sure.
0: Maybe if we could stay in that kind of international context. Um, you talk quite a bit in your book about no raid. Um, I, one thing I was a kind of random thing I was thinking about as I was reading your book was a few years ago, I was doing research of my own on, on something totally unrelated to Northern Ireland, but on the 80s in Ireland. And I was going through various newspapers from the period and and Noraid come up quite a bit. And I I was quite shocked about how terrified people in Ireland, like people in the Irish establishment were about Noraid. Um, So maybe if you could just explain, first of all, who this group were and then what kind of role they played in the conflict, what problems they pose for the
1: British government. Sure. Um, Well, Noraid uh, was unapologetically Republican. They supported the IRA. They always made the case that they were um, not um, supplying money or weapons to the IRA, but nobody really believed them. Um, They made the case that they were raising money to assist um, uh, families whose um, loved ones were incarcerated by the British um, or um, families who had lost members um, to uh, the violence of the Troubles. Um, but, but again, NORAD was raising money for the IRA, and the, the American government knew that, um, as did the British and, and Irish governments. Um, NORAD a- alarmed a lot of people, not only in um, the United Kingdom and in Ireland, but here in the United States. Uh, It's one of the things that John Hume was really successful in doing is arguing against NorAid, arguing um, that uh, the money that was going to NorAid was uh, only going to increase the misery that taking place um, in Northern Ireland. But NorAid was a tenacious group uh, that was well organized. In 1983, they uh, mounted uh, a very famous uh, people's tour meant to be an educational tour. Uh, for Americans interested in the conflict in Northern Ireland, um, over 80 um, NORAD uh, supporters made their way uh, to Dublin. Uh, they were greeted by Joe Cahill, um, a famous uh, Republican, uh, IRA uh, leader um, at Dublin Airport, and they t- went on a bus tour um, into Northern Ireland. Um, while traveling in South Armagh, their bus uh, was stopped and uh, boarded by um, fully uh, sort of uniformed members of the IRA who uh, received uh, cheers from the crowd. Um, this created tremendous concern for the British government, as well as the Irish government. And, you know, the press, uh, the British and Irish press um, looked at NORAID and its leader um, in, uh, in Ireland during this time, Martin Galvin, who was a lawyer from New York who traveled with the group. And, the, you know, the press um, lampooned the group. They, they argued that they were simplistic, that they didn't understand um, the conflict, um, that uh, they were dangerous because of the money that they were raising. <clears throat> and when, in 1984, Martin Galvin um, in New York um, mentioned that he would once again Bring a, a group of NORAID supporters to Northern Ireland. There was a debate within the British government about what it should do. Um, the uh, Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, as well as the Northern Ireland Office, um, told the Thatcher government that um, that Martin Galvin um, should be banned. Um, but this was something that was opposed by the British Embassy um, in Washington, um, as well as the uh, Foreign Secretary Jeffrey Howe. You know, both Howe and the Foreign Office believed that if you try and ban Galvin from coming into Northern Ireland, that it was inevitably going to fail, and it was going to only provide more um, uh, publicity for NorAid. Um, But in the end, the British government followed the advice of the Northern Ireland Office. They issued a ban um, forbidding Martin Galvin, from coming to Northern Ireland and making it clear that if he did make his way across the border, that he'd be arrested and deported. So Galvin, of course, arrives in Dublin, makes his way to Derry, is able to get into the city, is interviewed by the Derry Journal, is filmed by the BBC um, in Northern Ireland, and then comes to Belfast, um, where uh, a rally is held to welcome him. Um, When he makes his way onto the stage, um, the RUC, which is out in force, um, at this demonstration, tries to intervene to arrest him, and all hell breaks loose. And this is, again, 1984 in Belfast. The international media is there to record what happens um, when the RUC intervene. Um, there's uh, you know, violence, there are fights. Um, a RUC um, officer shoots a young 21-year-old Sean Down with a plastic bullet. He is killed Um You know, Galvin escapes. He never makes any real speech. He escapes and makes his way back into the Republic and back to New York. Um, And it's a fiasco for for the British government because all of this mayhem has been filmed. Um, And there are reporters there from um, the New York Times, the Washington Post, as well as the international um, British and Irish media. And the story becomes one of police brutality, of the fact that the RUC had overreacted, had you know gone into the crowd, wielding truncheons, beaten people up, and actually killed uh, somebody with a plastic bullet. And then stories begin to appear in the international press about plastic bullets um, and the sort of the way in which they're used and the number of people that have been killed. And the fact that most of those that have been killed by plastic bullets have been Catholics. The fact that, you know, within um, the European community, plastic bullets aren't used. So it's it just becomes, you know, a, a public relations nightmare for the RUC, for the British government and a sort of, uh, you know, a, a, a Sort of real boost for um, the Republican movement, you know. Sean Downs loses his life, um, unfortunately, but uh, you know this is the sort of thing that drives Margaret Thatcher and her supporters. Um, crazy. You know, they, they hate the fact that uh, the RUC and the British government are being portrayed as heavy handed as endorsing and promoting uh, police violence. Um, and, uh, you know, this is the narrative that they want to avoid. But they, you know, time and time again, they are frustrated by the way in which the story of the Troubles is making its way into the, um, into the media, and especially into mm-hmm. the international uh, print and broadcast media.
0: So maybe if we could talk a little bit about, about how Thatcher then does respond. Um, I think one thing that even people out, very much outside of media history will will be quite aware of is this broadcasting ban that, that she brings in or her government bring in in 1988. So is that a continuation
1: of longstanding policies or do you see that as something new? Well, no, it, it is. You know, censorship had been something that had been debated within Uh, The Thatcher government within the um, government that preceded her, the Labour government had um, looked at the way in which censorship might be implemented in Northern Ireland. Uh, Roy Mason, um, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland um, in the uh, Labour government, had been an advocate of censorship. He And uh, Margaret Thatcher um, agreed um, uh, before Thatcher became uh, prime minister um, that there should be a a coordinated response that both Labour as well as the Tories should be on the same page when it came to the way in which uh, the media should be handled. Um, You know, when Thatcher comes to power in 1979, um, she Looks at Northern Ireland and is horrified by what she sees. Of course, of course, her political mentor, Erie um, Neve, had been assassinated by uh, the INLA, you know, Republican group, um, and she um, looked at um, the, the sort of the way in which the media. Um, dealt with Northern Ireland and was always uncomfortable, um, although she declared time and time again that censorship um, was not on, that it couldn't work in a democracy. But by 1988, after a particular grisly series of events, she decided um, that um, she'd change her mind. You know, 1988 um, would see. Um, horrific violence. You know, there'd be a, a cycle of violence that would begin in Gibraltar when three unarmed members of the IRA would be shot dead by the SAS. Um, there'd be um, killings by Michael Stone at Milltown Cemetery, a, a loyalist who would um, kill a number of mourners who had come to the, the cemetery in Belfast um, to bury those that had been killed at Gibraltar. And then when a funeral for one of those that had been killed at Milltown cemetery made its way through Belfast, um, two, um, British corporals, um, would make, would abruptly appear, um, at the, um, at the, uh, funeral cortege and, and would be, be dragged from their car and killed by the IRA. It would be seeming a, a cycle of violence. And, and then a short time later, um, there'd be a number of young soldiers that would be, um, uh, you know, killed in a bombing that would take place in rural Tyrone. So it seemed as if the violence was accelerating, and there was a, a, a fear that it would make its way back onto the British mainland. And in October 1988, you know, Margaret Thatcher just decides that something has to be done, and that's when the broadcast ban um, is announced um, in Parliament, um, and which forbids the Voice. Of anybody um, supporting violence from having access to the airwaves. Of course, it's aimed specific, specifically at Sinn Fein, although you know the uh, Protestant paramilitaries are also named. But it's you know it it, it highlights the level of frustration um, within the Thatcher government and especially um, by Tom King, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, and, and Margaret Thatcher herself.
0: So, so do you see this as a kind of a specific? isolated case of censorship or would you connect it to kind of the broader, the broader history of, of allegations of state interference in the BBC
1: and things like that? No, I mean, I mean, there, you know, sent this sort of official censorship in 1988 um, is really not all that surprising. You know, one can see that there's pressure building um, throughout the seventies and throughout the eighties. There's tremendous frustration. And what um, the, Uh, labor and conservative governments had been able to do was to basically bully and threaten um, the broadcast media. You know, in 1979, Margaret Thatcher's government uh, makes it clear that the Prevention of Terrorism Act will be deployed against any journalist that comes into contact with the IRA. Um, And so there's always, uh, you know, a threat of censorship. There's always a degree of bullying. And Margaret Thatcher begins to pack the board of the uh, BBC with Uh, those that are sympathetic to her concerns with Tories, with, um, you know, sort of people that think like her and want to try and rein in as they would see at the BBC. So, you know, censorship is always there, but it becomes official in 1988. And of course, censorship has been um, a fact of life in the Irish Republic since the early 1970s. And this is something that the British government really admires. Um, They like the fact that um, the Irish government has been able to ban Sinn Féin and anybody that supports violence um, in the North from, from the airwaves. Um, in fact, um, it's interesting when one looks at the cabinet minutes from 1988, um, Douglas Hurd um, is the uh, Home Secretary, um, and he's the one that will make the announcement in the uh, House of Commons. And he distributes talking points to his to the rest of the cabinet, um, and they're told, you know, how to respond to reporters' questions, to questions that might be quite aggressive and challenging uh, the British government about the imposition of censorship. And one of the arguments that um, cabinet members, ministers, are, are told um, to um, to make is um, that. This is something that the Irish Republic has um, endorsed for many, many years, and it's been successful. So it it's just it sort of highlights the fact that censorship had been um, something that you know, the British government had been thinking about, that the Northern Ireland office had um, advocated in the 1970s. Although by the late 1980s, the Northern Ireland office is becoming really skeptical about whether or not it, it would actually work.
0: So maybe just as a final question, do you think there's more still to be done about the history of the Troubles and TV? Or will you go off in a totally different direction now now that you've written two books
1: on the topic? Yeah, well, I've done my work on it. I think there's still more that can be done. Um, You know, much of my work is, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a media studies person. I'm a, I'm a historian, and you know my work. Um, you know benefits from you know going into the archives, uh, you know digging through the written archives at Caversham, looking at the public records office in Northern Ireland and in, in Belfast, and working in the National Archives at Kew and uh, just outside of London. Um, I've also you know tried to re- sort of look at all of the secondary material that's been written um, about uh, reporting um, the troubles, but I think there's much more that can be. Done in um, looking at the journalists that actually covered these events. know, I've spoken to some um, BBC reporters and journalists who were and ed- editors who were working um, in the '70s and '80s, and their stories really haven't been told. I mean, there's there are a couple of very good books that have just been published over the last couple of years um, with. Um, short bits by reporters that had uh, had covered events in Northern Ireland, but I think it could be much more um, done, um, you know, by historians um, that might be interested in um, the narratives of the Troubles and the way in which these narratives were shaped. And I think that could be done by um, by oral history, by interviewing um, editors and, and journalists and managers uh, within. Both the BBC as well as RTE and the independent television companies uh, that made up the um, Irish that were overseen by the by the Independent Broadcasting Authority.
0: Well, well, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. I mean, the book is incredibly readable and obviously incredibly well researched. Thank you. Uh, Northern Ireland, the BBC, and censorship in Thatcher's Britain is out now with Oxford University Press. Professor Savage, thanks so
1: much for joining us. Thank you, Aidan. Pleasure.